Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our archives and was recorded in June of 2016 between our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and our returning guest, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Dr. Roberts served as Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy under the Reagan administration, where he worked on supply-side reforms such as the Kemp-Roth Bill. Mr. Roberts has taught at many prestigious institutions, such as Tulane, Stanford, and Virginia Tech. As a senior researcher at the Hoover Institution, Dr. Roberts eventually earned the William E. Simon Chair in Political Economy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has dozens of articles appearing in journals such as the Journal of Political Economy, Oxford Economic Papers, and the Journal of Law and Economics. In addition to his journal articles, Dr. Roberts is also the author of many books including How America Was Lost and The Supply Side Revolution. Together with Dr. Roberts, we discussed current geopolitics, how America lost its competitive advantage, and why the rise of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders may not be that surprising. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, good morning, Dr. Roberts. Uh, glad to have you uh, back. Uh, we want to discuss and take advantage of essentially the fact that you're the statesman who's covered over the last 40 years almost every change of significance in this country's policy. So, so we're going to take advantage of your experience today and talk about uh, current economics, current political trends in the United States and, and Europe. Uh, we'll talk about possible solutions if we can see them. And uh, so I wanted to uh, start off discussing uh, something, something unusual in, in the United States, which I didn't think we'd see so soon, but uh, uh, that's the phenomenon of, of phenomenon of George, I mean, of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, protests on two sides of the aisle, left wing, right wing, real disaffection with current policies. And that's unusual, I think, uh, in the last 50 years to see something quite as intense as that. Do you have any comments you'd like to make a comment on? Well, we've had protest candidates before, but they just didn't receive um, this much early support. Um, it, I'm surprised it's taken so long because uh, Washington has run the economy into the ground. Uh, it's uh, really uh, harmed uh, not just the poor, but the middle class as well. Uh, we have reports from the Federal Reserve that one half, one half, 50% of 25-year-old people in the United States have to live at home with their parents because they can't get a job sufficient to support an independent existence. Uh, we've had uh, 15 years of wars in the Middle East that have cost uh, the taxpayers trillions of dollars, uh, all pointless wars uh, in pursuit of a neoconservative ideology of world hegemony, in pursuit of power and profit for the military security complex. The American people and the reputation of the country have suffered dramatically from these gratuitous, uh, illegal, 
war crimes that we've been committing for 15 years. In fact, longer than that, they go back to the Clinton regime's uh, interventions in Yugoslavia and Serbia. So it has taken a long time for the people to understand that they've been deceived, misled, and put in a deplorable situation, both domestically in terms of the economic prospects that they face and in terms of a disastrous foreign policy that is bringing them into direct military conflict with Russia and China. Okay, let me, I'm going to again take the uh, point of view of the establishment uh, as, a, as a counterpoint uh, to you. Uh, I'm aware of the trends, of course, that you pointed out. And, and I'm arguing this. Uh, as, a, as a foreign policy or a deep uh, government official myself, I'm, uh, I'm playing that role, I've decided that I, can do, I, I don't have to operate with the American middle or working class people anymore. Uh, we're, we're, we're an empire. You know, we basically control the world with the exception of Russia and, and, and China. I don't need my manufacturing in America anymore. You've described uh, the attitude that has been in place, but of course you've also pointed out that uh, the strong support for Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump shows that uh, there's a reaction on the part of the people now to this attitude. Um, and uh, also you, we need to point out that when you give the economy away, we gave it to China. <laughs> and so what was now, what was once American manufacturing is Chinese manufacturing. And when you give away the good jobs, you also give away the purchasing power of the population so that they are unable to support the domestic economy, the base for the American power with a growth in consumer demand because there's no growth in their income. Um, for a few years, the Federal Reserve was able to keep the economy going by expanding consumer credit. But that's reached its limits too because people are so indebted and their incomes are not growing. So the effect of this policy is to erode the economic basis at home. And once there's a general realization that that basis is eroded, support for the dollar as world currency also erodes. Now, on the foreign policy front, the effect of uh, this 15 years of 21st century aggression has been to weaken the willingness of our vassal states in Europe to cooperate with us because now they're faced with millions of refugees from our wars, from America's wars in the Middle East, wars which the European countries uh, enabled by their diplomatic support and their minimum military support. Uh, they are implicated in these war crimes, but the product of it now is they are being overrun with millions of refugees, and this is shaking the political establishments in Europe. And we, we see uh, more movement of Europeans toward the rival formerly suppressed parties like uh, Marine Le Pen's in France. 
like uh, Farage's uh, independent party in Britain, uh, like the movements in Germany. So what, what, we, what we're doing is weakening our hold on our vassals, weakening the ability of the domestic economy to support the economic base. And we're also now uh, threatening our European vassals with a conflict with Russia that they have no stake in, a conflict that for them would be disastrous. So I think in, in this sense, uh, change in the United States will come from failures, the failure of the economy, the failure of the foreign policy, and the reluctance of the vassal states to continue their cooperation with Washington. Okay, well, you got my, uh, my problem, and I understand the dilemma that, that I have myself in. I, I get the fact as a policy planner, I get your points as to what's going on, but I, I also would say to you, and you have experience in this, I'm t I've tested the limits as to what a population will take in terms of pain and suffering. And we'll go to the example of Greece, which you're very familiar with. Greece is a, is a good example of taking a population and essentially decimating it at a, to a level that's probably unheard of in, 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 in the Western world in, in this, since before 1900. I can't think of any example where you've taken a modern state and you basically taken control of it basically are going to seize all of their assets, push the population standard of living down below reproduction, and, uh, and in the face of a vote by the Greek population who even realized that they're in a tough way and they voted no for these, for these uh, repressions, the establishment of Greece felt uh, the need to not cut away from the establishment in Europe and in effect the establishment of the United States and, and ride, ride it out at the expense of their own population so that there are deep limits that show the populations will take a severe, severe reduction of, of their standard of living. And if I can maintain that around the world, you know, I can rebuild the purchasing power uh, in Europe and the United States and Asia with the top 10 or 15% of the population. Let them in effect uh, be the realizers of demand and creators of demand, and I suppress the rest of the population in a, in a basically survival mode on the theory that in the example of Greece, they really can't do anything about it in this modern day and age. Now, as far as Russia, muscling Russia in this, in this operation, of course, by, by suppressing our allies, our, our vassals uh, in, in Europe, uh, we, we cut off the possibility of reciprocal trade with Russia. Well, we'll see uh, if this next leg of the economic collapse of the United States, how they feel after that. Um, we now have uh, some of the major big to, big, too big to fail banks collapsing like Deutsche Bank. If you look at the situation with all of the big bank stocks, they're plummeting. Uh, <clears throat> this, the kind of uh, upheaval that's brewing is beyond the control of the incompetent establishment. 
And certainly, uh, the uh, establishment did not count on Russia and China forming a strategic military and economic alliance. The United States and NATO are no match whatsoever for that alliance, uh, neither militarily nor economically. So I think the prospect of failure is very great. And uh, I think that uh, this failure will uh, help the political change at home. We, we've already seen that it's begun with the support that Bernie Sanders has and that Donald Trump has. I doubt that the establishment of either party will permit either of those two people to be the party's candidate. Because unless they can somehow get their hooks into them, it would imply a potential loss of control. On the other hand, there may not be a loss of control because Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, they're new on this scene. They have a, uh, a long-standing movement. They don't know the people that they could appoint to bring the changes that they, they think are necessary. And so they would simply fall into the hands of the establishment. Uh, they have to get their appointees cleared by the Senate, which is firmly in the hands of the establishment. And so uh, the prospects of change from within the American political system, they remain very low until the system is faced with large-scale failure. Now, this could happen. You know, what you described about the Greeks, well, the Greeks, in fact, all of Europe, or most of it, gave away its sovereignty when it joined the euro. There's no such thing as a sovereign country that can't create its own credit to support government debt. So the minute that Greece and Germany and France and Italy and Spain and Portugal gave up their own currencies, their own ability to create money and put it into the hands, essentially, of private banks who are now financed by private banks. They gave up their sovereignty. And if you give up your sovereignty, it's very hard to get it back, as the Greeks found out, particularly when the population is all brainwashed that they have to be part of the EU or they're finished. So the reason the Greek government couldn't do anything was, first of all, it didn't get a large enough share of the Greek vote to have clout with the creditors with whom it was trying to negotiate. And second, the Greek people kept saying, we must stay in the EU. We must be part of the euro. So that basically deprived the Greek government of any negotiating power whatsoever. And so the whole thing became a farce. It's also happened in Ireland. The, the Irish were looted by this same process. It's happened in Portugal. It's about to happen in Spain and Italy. Most likely it will spread because the only source now for these financial profits is looting itself.
The EU is now looting itself, <laughs> just like Americans are being looted by their financial system. So when enough people see this, experience this, it dawns on them. It, it's accompanied by economic failures. It's accompanied by foreign policy failures. Then all of this failure produces the opportunity for change or revolution. There could be revolution. Now, the Greeks had an opportunity to exit the euro. The Russians offered to finance them. But most likely, the government was threatened. You know, the United States is expert at assassinating people. You know, just look at all the indigenous leaders that rose up in South America who got overthrown or assassinated. Sometimes they're overthrown without being assassinated. Other times they're simply overthrown by being assassinated. And you can't uh, <clears throat> not suppose that such a threat was given to the Greek government. It's, it's easy. It's easy to accomplish. There's always a coup to blame. So these kinds of constraints, though, they weaken and pass away as it is perceived that the power at the center behind all this is weakening. And if you take into consideration the fact that the Russians and Chinese and the BRICS, as they're called, have created their own International Monetary Fund and their own World Bank. You're seeing here a lot of departure from Western economic institutions. They are also now um, engaging in trade with one another in their own currencies, leaving the dollar, bypassing the dollar so that the demand for dollars falls. The consequence and, and, the, and the sanctions that the United States arbitrarily and illegally places on countries. This also encourages countries to leave the dollar payment system. And so that further weakens and shrinks Washington's power. So I would say that uh, if the establishment thinks it can hold on by continuing its rapacious economic policy, its rapacious foreign policy, it will be surprised. It will not. Well, I hear you. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I counter, I say, look, yes, uh, and so they, they start to form a monetary union, but they're still not large GNP powers. I mean, we still, uh, our, our side still controls 80% of the output of, uh, of the world. And yes, uh, Russia has potential, and, uh, and China certainly has manufacturing potential, but China doesn't have oil, Russia has oil. They can, they can balance off with markets and oil and productivity quite nicely, but they're still an isolated group, big as they are. And if I, in effect, create the, the uh, World War II conditions, post-World War, War II conditions, and as long as I have the control of Mideast oil and all the other oil sources, I can still have a dollar, you know, an oil-backed dollar of a, of, a, of a certain of a certain strength, and that's still a powerful currency amongst my fellow travelers, let's say. And, and, and my guys still maintain and keep their wealth, their relative position in the world for what it's worth, 
And yes, maybe you can, you can go to the, to the elites of this country and say, look, you know, this is a strategy long term that really can't pay off. Well, I, I certainly agree that the um, economic strategy is short term and can't work beyond the short term. Um, the foreign policy uh, is long term in the sense that the neoconservatives who control American foreign policy and have since the second term of the Clinton regime. This strategy is for world hegemony. That means any country with an independent foreign policy is a threat to the unipower of the United States. So this is a strategy for long-term conflict. And that implies conflict with Russia and China, which the United States cannot win. And so there's all kinds of disasters waiting there. Domestically, and this is true not just in the United States, but throughout Europe, unemployment rates are extremely high. When the United States government reports a 5% unemployment rate, they are reporting a measure of unemployment that counts no discouraged workers. If you haven't looked for a job in the last four weeks, you're not considered unemployed. But the United States is full of discouraged workers. We see that from the collapse in the labor force participation rate. We see that in the fact that half of 25 year olds have to live at home with their parents. The real unemployment rate in the United States, if you measure both the short term discouraged and the long term discouraged is 23%. 23%, this is a very high rate of unemployment. It foretells all kinds of social and political instabilities. It puts serious constraints on the kinds of armament spending that the United States foreign policy has been supporting in the 21st century. In Europe, the situation is as bad or worse. In a number of countries, up to one half of the youth are unemployed. And so these type of conditions impose very short-term prospects on elites maintaining control. Particularly if you go into these countries that have these high rates of unemployment and you further suppress the populations, uh, forcing down public pensions, cutting uh, public services, forcing down wages, forcing the sell-off of national assets that result in income streams leaving the country and moving into the hands of foreigners, you produce a disaster. I mean, the whole thing is a house of cards. In fact, the United States economy is a house of cards. It's been propped up by the Federal Reserve's zero interest rate policy, which is kept in place 
by infusing the bankrupt banks with massive reserves to protect their balance sheets. The United States is able to do this because it's also able to force the Japanese and the European Central Bank to print their currencies also so that the great increase in the supply of dollars doesn't result in a movement into yen or euros because they're being inflated at the same rate. So these types of house of cards are unstable. It doesn't take a whole lot to bring them down. And we see what happened in the Middle East from the enormous miscalculations made in Washington. We see a situation so out of control, so full of failure, that the Russians were able to move into Syria and take over the situation. Uh, Dr. Roberts, I think we've got an impasse. You know, my strategies as, a, as, a, as a, an elite manager uh, have seemed to have run out of real uh, prospects for the long term. I've got a short-term strategy that obviously won't hold. I need help changing this strategy. Uh, I'm open to suggestions. What would you advise me to do to unlock this situation, which uh, you've convinced me is untenable? Well, there are two things that you would have to do, but the powerful private interest groups that control the government wouldn't permit you to do. Uh, one is you would have to fire all of the neoconservatives get them out of the administration, essentially ban them. <laughs> uh, you would have to use your influence to clean them out of the media because their strategy is a strategy of conflict. And a strategy of conflict with powerful countries like Russia and China, uh, this is a strategy of self-destruction. So you would have to end that conflict by giving up this neoconservative drive for world hegemony, and you would have to scale back the military security complex, both in terms of its budget and its power. For example, the power of the NSA to spy on everyone without warrants, <laughs> uh, the power uh, that the executive branch claims uh, to torture, to detain indefinitely American citizens without due process of law, to assassinate American citizens without due process of law, to claim exemption from domestic and international laws, to claim exemption from the sovereignty of other countries. This would be a huge major change, but that would be required. Economically, you would have to restore American manufacturing. This would be very difficult because the American firms benefit from producing offshore with very low labor costs, very low environmental compliance costs, and shipping the goods back here to be sold. So you would be up against another powerful interest. Most likely, the government would not be a match for either of these interests, much less the two of them together. 
But that's what you would have to do. How could you bring the industry back? You could change the way you tax corporations. You could tax them on the basis of whether the value added to their products is done domestically or offshore. If it's done domestically, they will have a very low tax rate. If it's offshore, they would have a very high tax rate. So you could use the difference in the tax rates to offset the labor cost advantage of producing offshore. When the jobs come back, then the incomes come back and there is growth in domestic consumer demand to maintain the economy, to reestablish the ladders of upward mobility that made the United States an opportunity society. You can't put those ladders back. The United States is no longer an opportunity society. It is another failed third world gangster state. Third world gangster states are not the centers of power. And so the policies currently in place are inconsistent with the United States remaining a powerful country or a center of power. So that's what you would have to do, but it can't be done. Well, it's uh, the manufacturing thing I, I think is doable. I mean, that is, is probably doable with the right tax policies, tariff policies, and an explanation to the Chinese why both would have to balance each other's interests by allowing uh, the manufacturing that's indigenous to us or uh, that would support our population to come back here. I think that's doable. What's not doable, I don't think, is the foreign policy issue with the uh, neoconservative elements that are, that are buried into the, the system. They have a, an agenda that apparently is one of, of, of conflict, and essentially I don't understand that logic as to why they would push it to the point of, of conflagration and in the end, a nuclear conflagration. What is, the end, what is the end game in their minds? Basically, when that's the end point of, of their, their strategies. And why would the, a democratic regime, as much as it's in the hands of finance and trade, why would it get co-opted by something that came from, from a, a, a deep right tradition uh, embed itself in, in, in with the Democrats and be comfortable there and able to in, be influence, influential on foreign policy. Some of the neocons believe that nuclear war is winnable. All of them believe that if enough pressure is put on Russia and China, that they will accept our leadership and back off their foreign policy independence. So if you have that belief that it's just a question of finding the right amount of pressure to put on Russia and China to get them to submit, then you are risking the nuclear war, particularly if Russia and China are not prepared to submit. So we had this week an announcement that the United States was going to triple its military forces on Russia's border. 
This is part of that pressure. We had in the Washington Post this week, uh, two academic types uh, publishing an article calling on the United States to establish a no-fly zone over all of Syria. This is an impossibility as the Russians already have one over their area of operations. <laughs> such a uh, call for such action is a call for conflict with Russia. This is supposed to make the Russians say, oh gosh, we don't want to get into this type of conflict, let's back off. Uh, we are also using the threat that the Saudi Arabians and the Turks will send armies to Syria. This is also a way of telling the Russians, hey, look here, you know, if, uh, uh, if the Turks and the Saudis are there interfering with what you're doing and the Turkish troops are acting as a shield for ISIS that you're bombing and you kill Turkish troops, well, then you'll be at war with NATO. What do we gain by pushing it? Let's assume we bluff them out and Russia sees its foreign policy or its, uh, its independence to us. Let's say they become part of NATO. What do we gain here? What do we, what do we gain that we don't already have access to? We remove an obstacle to our hegemony. You have to remember, when, when did Washington turn on Russia? It was just a couple of years ago. Why? Because Russia handed us two diplomatic defeats. You may remember the Obama regime had Syria set up for an American invasion. Obama had drawn the red line, and the red line was Assad mustn't use chemical weapons against his own people. So we faked it, and we were ready to invade, and the Russians said no. And they brought forth the evidence that it was faked, and they said, we will resolve it diplomatically because we will have Syria hand over to us their entire stocks of chemical weapons. And so they were removed. And so the excuse that we had for attacking Syria was taken away from us. Similarly, in Iran, in a similar situation, we had Iran all set up on this fake charge that they were building nuclear weapons. Despite the fact that all 16 United States intelligence agencies had declared unequivocally that they were not building nuclear weapons, despite the fact that all of the atomic energy agency inspectors on the ground in Iran were reporting there's no sign of any diversion of uranium into nuclear weapons. We still had them set up for attack. They were surrounded by all kinds of bases, our fleets in the Persian Gulf, and were being constantly demonized daily in the Western media. And again, the Russians said, no, we, we will resolve this. Um, and they did. They resolved it by uh, constraining the Iranian use of enrichment to the very low level for nuclear energy. So we wanted to get rid of Assad because he's not an American puppet. We wanted to get rid of the Iranian government because they're not American puppets. They're in the way of our hegemony. 
and the Russians blocked us. So that's when we said, okay, we got to give Russia trouble so that they will get out of our way. What's the easiest way to give them trouble? It's the Ukraine. We've got all kinds of non-governmental organizations in Ukraine that we finance. We've got all kinds of Ukrainian politicians that we finance. So we'll use the NGOs for protests. We'll turn that protest into a revolution and we'll put our people in charge. And so we did. And this caught, I think, uh, the Russian government off guard because it's so audacious. It's, it's such a reckless policy. And now that started more trouble. So if you look at this, you can see that the recklessness that comes out of Washington endangers the entire world. There's no such thing as winning a nuclear war. The, the hydrogen bomb is immensely more powerful than the atomic bombs we dropped in Japan. I mean, some of them are like 17,000 times more powerful. It doesn't take many of these weapons, so there's just nothing left. To talk about winning a nuclear war, you, you have to be insane. Okay, let's, 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 let's assume that they can't be that insane. Let's, let's make that assumption that they, they can't be that insane. Why would they even risk this? What's its, what do they gain by having Russia as a puppet? They had Russia as a puppet uh, in the 1990s when, when uh, the, the communists fell. They sent the harbor people in to recast the economy. They stole the economy from under the noses of the Russian people. Uh, what did it gain them? At the end of the day, control in Russia didn't gain the, didn't gain the West, the United States, a robust economic policy. Look what we have. It gains them the absence of a check on their world power. You see, they thought they had Russia under their thumb because Putin was a, a protege of Yeltsin. And it was the, the distraction of the neocons in the Middle East. You may remember they were telling us this would be a six-week war. And it would be financed with Iraqi oil revenues. Well, it became a, an eight-year war. And the other wars added in, like Afghanistan, 15-year war. Not financed with $70 billion in Iraqi oil revenues, but financed with the creation of about six or seven trillion dollars added to the U.S. national debt. While the neocons were distracted with all of their enormous failures, Putin reestablished Russia's independence, their economy, their military, and said, we've had enough. You've looted and plundered enough. That's it. And so Russia became a check on American power. If you read the neoconservative doctrine that was penned by Paul Wolfowitz as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, it says that the principal goal 
of American foreign policy is to prevent the rise of any country that could possibly serve as a constraint on American power. That's our principal goal. You might say, why do they have this principal goal? Why did the French Jacobins want to impose liberty, equality, fraternity on all of Europe and lead Europe into 20 years of the Napoleonic Wars? The people, ideologues are fanatics. They're not, they are immune to evidence, to facts. They believe. If you look at the Obama regime, who is his national security advisor? It is a neoconservative. Who's in charge of State Department Eurasian policy, that is, Russia, Ukraine? It is a neoconservative. Who is the, um, the uh, Obama regime's ambassador to the UN? It is a neoconservative. What does Obama hear? He hears what they have to say. Why did he appoint them in the first place? Because they dominate policy. The, the last administration that was not neoconservative was the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. You may, you may remember too that when George Bush, George W. Bush came in and started up these wars, let the neocons start up the wars. You may remember that the principles in the Bush administration, his father's administration, Herbert Walker Bush, they came out with a paper damning Washington's interventions in the Middle East. It was James Baker, who had been the Secretary of State for George Herbert Walker Bush. It was Hamilton, who had been, uh, I think, the uh, chairman of the uh, House Armed Services Committee, Foreign Policy Committee. And they came out and said, this, this won't work. We're not having it. And they were completely ignored because the neocons had completely cut the old Republican establishment out. They no longer had any representatives to enforce their policy, the neocons had them all. They have all the conservative institutions. They own the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fox News, it's endless. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. Indeed, you can't assume that some neocons don't think nuclear war is minimal because there's an article and the in Foreign Affairs, the publication in the Council of Foreign Affairs that says that the Russians are really so far behind our nuclear capability that we can defeat them. In fact, we can knock them out and have so much in reserve that they wouldn't dare retaliate because they'd get a second strike. Well, why it begs the question though, why wouldn't the Obama or the Democratic administration, starting supposedly fresh, uh, even though they brought in all the old Clinton economic advisors. Why would they have maintained, and especially with Hillary Clinton, why would they have maintained a uh, neocon presence uh, when they had the, the, had the options to change personnel? Why do you think they had the option? 
They didn't have the option. There wasn't any, they didn't have any such option. <laughs> and neither will Hillary Clinton, she's one of them. There's no option to change the personnel. Only failure will change it. There is some sign now of, of uh, the reappearance of a more traditional type uh, American foreign policy starting to challenge the neoconservatives a bit because of the massive failures and risk that the neoconservatives are presenting. It's not that no one is aware of this. Uh, previously, they've just been silenced and forced out. Uh, but that opposition is not strong enough to bring about the change. And Obama, who does Obama know? Here's a guy, what, a one-term senator from some from Illinois or something? What, who does he know? What does he know about issues? Who does he know to put in office? How does he get them confirmed by the Senate? The, the neoconservatives are a very powerful group. They have been after power for decades. They got it. You know, they had it for a while in the Reagan administration. They produced the Iran-Contra affair, and they all got fired and prosecuted and sentenced. But they made a comeback with Clinton, with Serbia, with Yugoslavia, establishing these precedents that the United States can interfere in the sovereign affairs of other countries. And this is where the notion of American uh, indispensability, exceptionalism come from. If you are the exceptional people, the indispensable country, that means nobody else is exceptional and that everybody else is dispensable. These are claims that exceed the claims of Nazi Germany about being the, the Ubermens. These are more excessive claims that the neoconservatives make for the United States than the Nazis made for the Third Reich. Uh, but Dr. Roberts, let me, let me then say, if we allow the, you know, we, we go along with the analysis relative to Russia, but the United States has had a history of separating China from Russia, uh, uh, starting with, let's say, the Nixon, the Nixon years. And so we've now built up China deliberately by allowing them to manufacture our products and we borrow their money. Uh, this is a, a process that seems to be in, uh, indifferent to the Russian situation as it stands. Why would we have allowed China to be, become a power when if we never traded with them in the first place, they'd probably still be a backward country at the present time. So that we ran a strategy of building up a possible counterweight to ourselves deliberately in that case. Russia, we didn't do that. We didn't have that economic exchange with Russia that we had with China. Now we're forcing China and Russia back together, which is logical under the circumstances. But what's our thinking there? Why would we have built up, why would the neocons have allowed a buildup of China in the first place? Giving them our manufacturing is the thing to make them the indispensable nation given their population. How would you explain that? The buildup of China resulted from Wall Street pressures on American corporations and also from pressures of big box retailers like Walmart. Essentially, what happened, and, and this was not possible until the Soviet collapse, 
But when the Soviet Union collapsed, <clears throat> it caused a change in mind among the Chinese leadership and the Indian leadership. In India, it was a socialist country. They had all kinds of restrictions on foreign capital, on the entry into, into India on foreign enterprises, and certainly also in China. But the Soviet clouds right, created a reassessment. And India and China said, look, you know, uh, if the Russians could make it work, we're not going to make it work either. We've got to change. And so that's when they became capitalist. And part of doing that was to open their vast underutilized labor forces to first world capital. Well, when that happened, this is post-1991, Wall Street and shareholder advocates, as they were called, started putting pressure on corporate management to move the production for American markets offshore and take advantage of the very low uh, labor rates in China and India in order to maximize profits, boost uh, shareholder gains. And of course, Congress had cooperated with this by limiting the uh, salaries that could be tax deductible uh, as a corporate expense for executives to $1 million annually, unless they were performance-based. If they were performance-based, well, there could be endless millions. And so the combination of the economic incentives for the management, plus the threats by Wall Street, if you don't move offshore, we're going to finance a takeover and the new people running the company will move it offshore. How does Wall Street, how does Wall Street and the neocons then make peace in a situation that has a huge contradiction built into it? Yes, of course it does, but people, people don't always realize this at the time because the neocons had come out, the collapse of the Soviet Union had, had a huge effect on them too. They said, look, see, there's no alternative to us. History chose us. We are chosen by history to exercise hegemony over the world. And so if you've got that much arrogance and hubris, you're chosen by history. Why do you care about China? And not only that, at the time, all the so-called experts were saying, oh, well, uh, yes, China will eventually come around as a result of this, but it'll be a half a century. Instead, it was like about eight years. <laughs> and so it caught them off guard. But if you're full of hubris and arrogance, and it's going to take a half a century for China to come around to be of any concern, then you make these mistakes. I'm not saying these people are don't make mistakes. They make horrendous mistakes. That's what I'm saying is going to bring them down. It's the mistakes they've made in economic policy, the mistakes in foreign policy, the conflicts they're brewing. Look, what kind of superpower are you? when after 15 years you can't defeat a few thousand lightly armed Taliban, when after enormous expenditures destroying Iraq, 
It's in the hands of the Islamic State who hate your guts. <laughs> you, you're not a superpower. You're a failed, washed up third world banana republic. And increasingly, that's how the world sees us. Why, why aren't American troops being sent to threaten Russia and Syria? Why do we have to send Turks and Saudis? Did you think the Russians are afraid of the Turks and the Saudis? No, I wouldn't think they would be. I mean, really? But you've got, you've got a situation that's set up for failure all around here. Yeah. And, and some reasonable heads hopefully would prevail. The only reasonable heads are in Russia and China. They're the only ones acting reasonably. When they get these provocations, they turn away from them. They don't reply in kind. I mean, Russia could have, Russia could have uh, taken over Ukraine in uh, a week. The whole thing would have been over with. They didn't do it. Russia could bring Europe to heal and force all of Europe to abandon NATO just by turning off the gas. They don't do it. Uh, China can make mincemeat of Taiwan, South Korea, whatever. Nothing we could do about it. They don't do it. You see, what's working against the neoconservatives is this. They are a threat to the entire world. They have presented themselves as a world threat. My book describes the threat. And if you're a threat to everybody, then you don't have a future. They're turning out to be a threat to the United States also. I mean, of course, they always have been. What I mean is people are beginning to realize that they're a threat. So as I said a little earlier in our discussion, you see now some resistance to their foreign policies coming up. More critics. Uh, important people like Stephen Cohen who is probably the preeminent uh, Russian expert in the United States. Professor of Russian Studies at Princeton, at New York University, emeritus now, but certainly a very learned, and honest, and forthright person. And more people like that now are speaking against them. It's not just me. The opposition is growing because they, the world has realized their threat, a huge threat. You, you cannot go about making yourself a threat and expect to be tolerated forever. And so that is the trouble with the neoconservative establishment. They are a threat to the American people because of the lack of economic opportunity. If you you know, even the government's rigged economic data shows that the real income of Americans is declining and has been for years. Now, if the data was honest, it would show a huge decline. That is, standard of living of the American people is falling. The opportunities for them collapsing the obligations placed on them rising. 
this is not a recipe for success. What is your feeling based on everything you know as to what the future might, might hold for the United States and, and the people of the United States? We'll end it on that. I think that the opportunity for democratic change anytime soon is limited because there are not powerful movements working in that direction that are organized with leaders that know who the people are that they could appoint to bring about the change in policies. Without that, it's hard for the democratic process to bring change. So what I think is more likely to happen than Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump fixing the situation for us, though I'm not opposed to that. What is more likely to happen, I think, is the is economic collapse in the United States. We're going to have another round like we had in that began in December of 2007. What policy this time? More money creation? How much more money can you create before people flee currencies? How, how can you have companies with huge price earning ratios and literally no profits? How long can the stock market be propped up by companies using their profits to buy back their own stock? by companies going into debt to banks for loans to buy back their own stock, and by money pumped into the banking system by the Federal Reserve that's used to support the stock indices. This is nothing real there. It's, it's not real. It's not there. What, what do you do? How, do? how have you had an economic recovery, according to the official line, we have been in economic recovery since June of 2009. How can this be true when the labor force participation rate has fallen throughout that period and is lower now? Stop. When you have an economic recovery, the economic participation, the, the participation rate of the American people in the economy rises as people flow into the jobs, but there's not here, jobs. And the jobs that are reported, they're all low-income domestic service, waitresses, bartenders, retail clerks, social services and, and health care. These types of things, you, you can't really exist in an independent household on those wages. So this is a, it's, it's failed. It's just a matter of collapse. It's waiting on the collapse. The foreign policy has failed. We've created the Islamic terrorists that weren't there by bombing and destroying seven countries in 15 years. The, the refugees from this destruction overrunning Europe eroding the foundations of the establishment parties that we control. Well, Dr. Roberts, uh, of course, thank you. You're, you're a great American patriot. People who have followed you know that. Well, you're welcome. And if I may say, I think that the way you represented 
the establishment view is also a great lesson for the American people because it shows how selfish and, and the mendacity and criminality of the American establishment. And you did a great job of showing the true nature of the people that, who are governing us. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.